All right, Jesse, last week's Candle Whisperer episode was super extra spooky for Halloween. What's the story this week? When someone dies mysteriously at home in Philadelphia's moneyed mainline area, the detectives can't believe the lowbrow behavior they dig up on a supposedly high society citizen. I'm Andy Cassette. And I'm Jesse Prey, and this is Love Murder. Welcome back, everyone, to Love Murder, a podcast about mysterious murders, secret lives, and love gone fatally wrong. You can find Love Murder on Twitter and Instagram at Love Murder Pod and on Facebook by searching Love Murder Podcast. And as always, if you enjoyed this show, please love slash murder a five-star rating on your podcast app, subscribe, and review to help new people discover the show. As always, thank you guys so much. Seriously. Really, we had an incredible amount of reviews this week. You guys were so sweet. Thank you, thank you, thank you. And if we seem extra jazzed tonight, it is because Andy and I get to be in person. Yay! Literally flew here to record this episode. Yeah, she's only here for 12 hours. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) So we are both probably a little peaky because Andy flew from Las Vegas. Yes. And then had to drive a couple hours up from New York City. And I hosted a three-year-old's birthday Halloween party today, which, you know, I've run a couple marathons in my life. And I think I'd rather do that than throw a three-year-old's birthday party ever again. Note to self. Yeah. Note to self. But I I said to my husband, we have to do this every year. And he said, yes. So looks like, looks like it's kids' birthday parties. up the energy for next year. (laughs) You should. Start reserving that energy. (laughs) Okay. So guys, we have an incredible story for you today. It was one that I like kind of knew about, but thank you to Nancy. You know Nancy from our Facebook group. Yeah, Nancy's a legend. A legend. So thank you, Nancy, so much. You're the one who brought this back to my attention. And I, I do think it's it's a very quintessential love murder story. Andy, I think you're going to really dig this one. Are you so ready? I have LM written all over it. LM written all over it. It is written all over the story, like juicy was written over the butts of women in the early aughts. Wow. Wow. (laughs) Wow. Okay, I'm ready. Okay, let's do this. In April of 1997, Stephanie and Craig Rabinowitz seemed to truly have it all. Craig was a successful entrepreneur and Stephanie an attorney at a prestigious Philadelphia firm. They owned a modest yet immaculate house on the legendary and moneyed mainline, home to some of the wealthiest communities in the United States. Best of all, they had a beautiful baby girl who was just about to turn one. The Rabinowitzes were also fortunate enough to have the support of friends and family close by. Stephanie's parents, Lou and Ann Newman, lived in a neighboring suburb and helped often with baby Haley. They also had a fantastic group of friends, all married professionals with kids just like them who got together weekly for poker games and barbecues. Like, basically the suburban dream. Yeah. Stephanie was 29 and Craig 34 years old, and they had already achieved so much in their young lives. That's why it was devastating to all those who loved them 
when one of their lives was cut tragically short in an accident late one night. Uh, who? I can't tell you that yet. The Rabinowitz's close circle would eventually question everything they ever knew about Stephanie and Craig when shocking secrets came to light that made them wonder if you can ever truly know somebody deep down. We've got money, sex, and betrayal on today's episode of Love Murder. I mean, that's just classic. Par for classic course. Classic Love Murder. LM over here. <laughs> and you guys, you know how this is going to be a good episode because one of my sources today is probably my favorite investigation discovery show of all time, Scorned Love Kills. This was the second ever episode of the series that really pushed me to create this podcast. So you you know it's going to be a good one. So let's start talking about Stephanie. Stephanie Newman was born in June of 1967 to Mother Anne, a secretary for a rabbi, and Father Lou, an accountant. She also had a little brother named Ira, and the family lived in Elkins Park, a suburb of Philadelphia. Stephanie was an uncommonly impressive child and student. She was the perfect combination of naturally intelligent and hardworking. Okay. And you know, so often we get somebody who has a very high IQ, but they are kind of lazy. Yeah. She was not at all like that. Everything she had, she put it all on the table. Okay. So she was in the gifted and talented program at school starting in first grade. Crazy. All the way up through high school. And she also told her parents at only 11 years old that she planned to read Torah which is a huge undertaking. The Torah is a collection of the first five books of the Judaic scripture and essentially the entire body of Jewish law and learning, also entirely written in Hebrew. So reading Torah meant chanting from the scripture in the original language and mastering these complex intonations that are required to give meaning to the words. Yes, This is so complicated and a very, very lofty goal. And one that Stephanie accomplished by the time of her bat mitzvah when she was only 13 years old. That's wild. Yeah, she was apparently so good at reading Torah that they asked her to be a tutor to other kids that were trying to learn it or preparing for their bar bat mitzvahs. Okay. Stephanie was a National Merit Scholar and attended Bryn Mawr after graduating high school with honors. Naturally, she also graduated from college with honors as well in 1989, and she went on to study law at Temple University. I mean. Whoa. Whoa. I mean, it makes me tired just talking about what she accomplished. Yeah, that's a lot. Yes. So Stephanie, though warm and outgoing, was most commonly described as direct and focused. Basically, if she set her mind to something, she achieved it. And this was true even when it came to love. Stephanie met Craig Rabinowitz in 1983 at Camp Wihilo when she was 16 and a counselor in training. Stephanie's vivacious personality, big brown eyes, and full wavy brown hair captured the attention of the Temple University student and counselor at a nearby boys' camp. By the time the young couple went on their second date to a Philadelphia Flyers hockey game, Stephanie didn't have the eyes for anyone else. The two continued to date throughout the end of Stephanie's high school career and then through her time at Bryn Mawr. Several times, her mother Anne gently suggested that perhaps she could see what other fish there might be in the sea. But Stephanie only rolled her eyes. She knew what she wanted, and it was charming, gregarious Craig Rabinowitz. 
On June 17th, 1990, almost exactly seven years since they met at camp, and only two weeks after her 23rd birthday, Stephanie married her longtime love. I feel like that's not too far off in the 90s, like 23 after no. college. Like that makes sense, you know? That's like you totally, said 97. Like especially that's, when you've been with the person yeah. since you were 16 years old. Yeah. 100%. And they both are Jewish as well. 100%. Like, I feel like that's just like, I feel like most parents would be like, oh my God. So excited. Yeah. They have yeah. very similar values. Obviously practice the same religion. Yeah. It made sense. Also, I think his family at this point was in New Jersey, which isn't so far. No, so that's great. Yeah. The whole family was fairly local, Yeah, you know? So the couple, as every couple does, had their ups and downs. But to be honest, theirs were mostly ups. Any bickering that they had could be attributed to the fact that the two were in practice very opposite from one another. Okay. Stephanie was responsible, serious, academic, and very goal-oriented. Well, Craig had dropped out of Temple University and never really settled into a solid career path. Okay. What was he doing then? He he did several things. So he had a really outgoing personality. He was very likable. He also had like I mean, this is always a befuddling quality when somebody has a taste for the finer things in life, but not really the ambition to achieve them. Yeah. So he had started out trying to create a summer camp. Okay. Because that was part of his background. And it never got off the ground. Okay. And then he worked at a woman's spa for a little while. I'm not really sure. I think it was something in administrative work. Okay. And then he was also briefly a real estate appraiser. Okay. And so these are some of the things that he did for a little while. Shortly after the couple's wedding, he started a business with a friend of his named Craig Usum, and they dubbed it C&C Vending. C-squared. Yeah, (laughs) C&C Vending. (laughs) So the business sold latex gloves to healthcare practitioners. Would have been a killing last year. Right? Yeah. Yeah. So it unfortunately didn't take very long for the professional relationship to end. I don't know why they didn't say so the, the book that I'm using for the majority of our research today is a book called Everybody's Best Friend by Ken Englade, mm. which was actually a really, really compelling read, I have to say. I was, I was glued to it. So Craig decided to go out on his own with C&C supplies. So he kept the extra C. He told family and friends that he bought latex gloves from Malaysia and resold them in the Philly area for a 33% profit. In order to seed his business, he took investment money from the Rabinowitz inner circle, including Stephanie's parents, Lou and Anne, who, by the way, had also allowed the couple to live with them while they saved for a house, as well as Craig's mother and their closest friend group of the four other couples that I mentioned. He took money from all of them. Money from all of them. Yeah. Well, it seemed like it was working out, though, because the friends and family soon began to make returns on their investments. And Stephanie also got a really good job as an attorney at a fancy Philadelphia law firm. So it did seem like everything was coming up roses for the two of them. Stephanie and Craig definitely had arrived financially and socially when they were able to purchase a home in Lower Marion, a town on the famous main line of Philadelphia. Their first child, a baby girl named Haley Sarah, was born in May of 1996, and the perfect family was complete. Craig was very much like a 90s dad when you think like step-by-step, full house. Yeah. Like he had that like poofy hair thing going on. Do you have a fanny pack? 
Yeah, it kind of looked like he did. You know, the the like tucked in polo shirt into the khakis yeah. with like the white gym socks? Yeah. That look. He had a, a serious dad bod. He was 33 when Haley was born and he looked kind of older than that, yeah. I would say. You look back. For today. For today. You yeah. were like, how is that guy not 45? Yeah. But I feel like that was so many people in the 90s. Yes. Like, I feel like people just looked older. It was weird. When like, you look back at pictures and yeah. you realize that that person is 35 and they look like 50. Yeah. It's so trippy. Yeah. After Haley's birth, Stephanie, who was an extremely hands-on and devoted mother, went down to halftime hours at the firm so she could spend more time with her little girl. Okay. Stephanie was now bringing in $30,000 a year, which is definitely not terrible, but not when you're talking about paying a mainline mortgage. By yourself. Yes. Well, not totally. Luckily, Craig's business appeared to be booming. How does it appear to be booming? Well, people are making money. He's bringing some money in, so it seems like it's doing okay. Is it not real money? Is it like Monopoly money? No, he's bringing in money. He's doing just fine. Okay. So much so that Craig convinced Stephanie to cash out her stock portfolio. No. No. Because he was confident that he could net more money through his business. So Stephanie willingly parted with the cash. It was close to $8,000, but she told him that she wanted a fast return. Close friends of Stephanie and Craig's described them as the perfect couple. Stephanie was the kind, responsible one who made sure everyone stayed connected and helped organize social gatherings. And Craig really did seem to worship the ground she walked on. It was always the envy of the other women in the group how close attention Craig paid to Stephanie. They said it was like almost too much. Like he'd always be like, do you need something to drink? Are you okay? Are you comfortable? I'm just checking on you. Like coddling her a little bit? Yeah. Like he just always seemed to be very aware of her. And some of the women were like, oh man, my husband barely notices me. It's so nice that he's like that, you know? And where the title of the book comes from, Everybody's Best Friend, was that Craig had an ability to just get along with everybody. Like okay. he was like Mr. Sports Guy with the men and they would like plan trips together. But he could also just like kind of like hang out with the women. Yeah. And they used to joke that he was like more of a gossip than they were. Okay. You know, so he just like had this type of personality that just fit in anywhere he was. And he got along with people so well that they kind of just assumed that Stephanie was mostly the breadwinner and okay with it. And she had this like gregarious, like big personality husband who was so good with the kid and so good with her that it was fine. That was just their dynamic. Yeah. He's like a chameleon. Exactly. On Tuesday, April 29th, 1997, the couple went out to a dinner with Anne and Lou Newman at a local Thai restaurant. Yeah. When they returned to the Rabinowitz's home, Stephanie made her parents some coffee and Craig took Haley out for a walk in the stroller. What time was it? It was only like, I think, pushing like 6, 6.30, 7. Oh, okay. It was very early. early. They went to like an early bird special there. Okay, cool. Yeah. And so I guess Craig did this every night, but this was like an uncommonly long walk he took with her for some reason. Okay. So by the time he got home, Anne and Lou had actually already left and it was like well past time that they had to get Haley into bed. It might be like 7.30 or something, you know? Okay. So they do Haley's bedtime routine And after Haley was asleep, Craig cracked a beer and he offered one to Stephanie who drank half of one before being like, you know, I had a lot of tea at the restaurant then I had coffee and I'm just kind of full. So here you go. And after that, a friend of theirs named Jeff Solomon, who was a personal injury lawyer, called the house and he ended up speaking to both Craig and Stephanie. 
I guess he talked to Craig first and he's like, hey, put Stephanie on the phone because he thought that he had seen Stephanie earlier in the day and she had ignored him. So he was like making fun of her. He's like, hey, you snob. I like beeped at you and I said hi and you didn't wave back. And she was like, no, I didn't see you, you know? Okay. So they had this this sweet conversation or this weird conversation, depending on how you're looking at it. And then they got off the phone. And Jeff would be the last person other than Craig to ever hear Stephanie's voice again. At 1239 that evening, or I guess early that morning, a Lower Marion police officer responded to a 911 call that a man had made panicking that he had discovered his wife unresponsive in the bathtub. Both the emergency medical services and the police were dispatched and Officer James Driscoll arrived first on the scene. He entered the home and heard a male voice call from help from upstairs. Driscoll raced up the stairs and into a small bathroom where he found a pale-faced Craig Rabinowitz in the bathtub holding his nude, limp wife who was already turning blue. Whoa. Craig quickly explained that Stephanie had been unable to sleep, so she had drawn a bath to relax. At some point, Craig had heard a loud thump, but assumed it was a shampoo bottle falling from the shower shelf. I guess that was something that happened often at their house. He now feared that it had been Stephanie falling and he hadn't looked into it at that point. He he let her stay in the bath for an additional half hour before he checked on her. Okay. And when he did check on her because she wasn't responding to him saying, hey, what's going on? He found her submerged yeah. in the bath. So at that point, he started crying. He said like he couldn't move her. Obviously, Officer James Driscoll helped remove her from the bath and put her on the bath mat. Okay. And began CPR At that point, Haley started crying. Uh, (sighs) Yeah. So James Driscoll told him to go help his daughter and said, I'm going to continue doing CPR until the emergency services arrive. So the paramedics arrived very shortly thereafter, and they decided that since Officer Driscoll had been trying to do these life-saving operations, resuscitations, and it wasn't working, they were like, we need to get her to a hospital right away. So they just immediately rushed her to the hospital. Luckily, Craig was quickly aided by a neighbor who had been woken up by all of the lights and sirens and everything. And the neighbor was like, you go to the hospital right away. I'll call your friends. He had like, you know, one of those old school like lists, like of everybody's like names and numbers. He's like, call this person, this person, this person. Tell them that Stephanie's at the hospital to meet me there. So the the neighbor and her husband took care of Haley and also called all of his friends and family. Okay. And he, you know, ended up changing out of his wet clothes because he had been in the bath. Yeah. And then going on to the hospital. As the loved ones arrived and rallied around Craig, they did receive some devastating news. Stephanie had been unable to be revived and she was officially declared dead at 1.35 in the morning. Oof. So the doctors had done everything they could, they said. And while the ER doctor had not detected any signs of foul play, they really strongly suggested an autopsy because they had no idea what had killed her. Okay. It didn't seem obvious that it had been a drowning. It seemed like they, they like it, maybe a drowning was part of it, but it looked like it was totally possible that it was a heart attack or a stroke. Oh, like no contusion on her head? There was no contusion on her head. There was no obvious sign of what exactly had happened. Okay. 
So because of that, and not because they suspected foul play, they strongly suggested an autopsy. By this time, Anne and Lou Newman had arrived, and they were still reeling from this completely unexpected death. I mean, they had been with their daughter that night for dinner. Yeah. So this is just completely shocking to them. Also, Lou was battling cancer himself at this point. Okay. This family is already going through a lot. There's a lot going on here. And when the ER doctor says, I really, really strongly suggest an autopsy so we can find out what what happened happened here, their first reaction was negative because they were very conservative Jewish people. Okay. And the two reasons why this would go against their faith is that some more Orthodox Jews feel that postmortems violate the body in God's law. Yeah. And they also prefer to bury their dead within 24 hours. Yeah. And so if she has an autopsy, that's going to prevent that from happening. So this is really disconcerting for them on so many levels. Yeah. Like, you never imagine that this is going to happen to you. It happened out of the blue, and now they're up in the middle of the night having to make these decisions that feel like they run counter to their faith. Yeah, but if a medical professional is advising... Yeah, exactly. And they weren't the only ones who seemed a little taken aback. Craig turned apparently white as a sheet when the doctors suggested that they do an autopsy. Stop. Who saw that? There was witnesses in the room that later said he looked like he saw a ghost when they suggested it. But he said nothing. He didn't say, he didn't say like, no, we're not doing an autopsy or anything. He just looked panicked. They probably couldn't say anything. Obviously. So, so he couldn't say anything. He didn't say anything. Her parents were like, no, no, no. Why do we have to do that? And actually one of their friends who was in the room as well, who was also Jewish, was like, look, I understand where you're coming from, but what if what happened to her was genetic? And don't we owe that oh, to your daughter? Oh, my God. So smart. I didn't even think about that. And and honestly, nobody at this point was assuming foul play even a little bit. Even the doctor said there's no sign of foul play whatsoever. But the friend was very medically concerned for Haley's welfare. Wow. That's so smart to think of. Yeah. If we don't know why and you're going to have questions the rest of your life, aren't you going to be worried at any point this beautiful little girl could be 29 yeah. years old and drop dead just like her mother? Yeah. Yeah. It's important to find out what it was. Yeah. And with that compelling logic, the Newmans were like, yes, you're absolutely okay, right. Okay, that's incredible. That mm-hmm. person. Yeah. So they named actually the friends in the book. There was like four couples, but yeah. they all went by pseudonyms in the book. Yeah. So I'm not even going to mention their names. Yeah. It's not even their real names. They sounded like incredible people. They were all interviewed by Ken Englade. And they sound like really, really wonderful people. I and think smart. it takes someone who is from the same faith, though, giving you that logic in the most crazy, chaotic moment of your life to be able to have you, like, step back and be like, yes, that you're right, you know? Because yeah. what else are you going to do? Like you said, getting that call in the middle of the night when, like, it goes against two really strong things that have to do with your faith. Like, Yeah. I, no, I, I agree with you completely. It was nice that somebody was there to be able to step in and be like, I actually truly understand how you're feeling. And was that someone feeling. who Craig told people to call or was that? Yes, that was, okay. but it was one of their, both of their deep couple friends. Okay. So they were equally close to both Craig and Stephanie. Okay. They had been together so long that they had, they kind of had friends they had met together. Yeah. There wasn't like a, this is your friend versus my yeah. friend, you know? Meanwhile, a detective had been roused from his bed to meet Officer Driscoll at the Rabinowitz home. 
Officer Driscoll recounted Craig's version of events. Basically, Stephanie couldn't sleep. She went for a bath while he watched a hockey game. At some point, he heard the thump of the shampoo bottle, or so he thought, ignored it, and then sometime later went in to check on his wife, at which point he found her unconscious and submerged in the tub. He tried to get her out and failed and then immediately called 911. Craig affirmed that no one else had been in the house. He said he had locked up as usual before Stephanie had gotten into the bath and then unlocked the door for the EMTs and police after calling 911. There was absolutely no sign of forced entry or struggle. Driscoll related some observations to the detective. Number one, the bathroom floor had been completely dry when he arrived which did strike him as odd for a man allegedly struggling to get his wife out of the bathtub. Honey bunny. Mm-mm, Honey mm-mm, bunny. Mm-mm. Number two, Stephanie had been wearing all of her jewelry. She'd been wearing earrings, bracelets, rings, and a gold watch. You would, like, even if you don't take off, like, some of your jewelry, you take off your watch before you take a bath. Yeah, especially in the 90s when they didn't have, like, waterproof watches. Yeah, and it's a gold watch. This isn't a sports watch, you know? So he thought that was odd as well. And number three, there was a pile of Stephanie's clothes on the bathroom floor, ostensibly, which she had removed before getting into the bath. But inside the underwear was a used sanitary napkin, which... You'd think you'd dispose of as you prepared for the bath. Yes. You wouldn't leave it in your underwear. There's not a woman on earth who would leave that in her underwear and not peel it out and throw it away. No. Because you're not saving it for later. You're not getting out of a bath and, and you putting on a dirty sanitary pad. We're also the ones that are then putting the clothes in the laundry bin, and we're not going to want to deal with it later when we're putting the clothes in the laundry machine. So you're going to do it when you're taking yes. off your underwear. Absolutely. There's. I can't think of any world in which, unless you were – completely out of it or drunk that you wouldn't do that, you know? no. There was also no suicide note or prescription bottle found at the scene that would suggest perhaps it had been a suicide. The detective called his captain, and despite no clear evidence of foul play, both of their guts were screaming. Really? Yeah. In fact, the captain spoke to author Ken Englade, and he said that when he first got the call that a woman had died in an accident in her bathtub. He was like, why is this bothering me so much? And then he sent a detective out to the scene and he couldn't get back to sleep. He's like, I don't know. This seems like it should be totally fine. People have accidents all the time. People die all the time in terrible ways. Something felt icky. Uh He just couldn't get back to sleep. And the detective called him and he's like, I don't know why. I I didn't see anything that was clearly evidence of something weird, but I just feel like something's odd here. And the captain was like, me too. Like, let's investigate this one. Okay, good. I want to see the autopsy. The captain said to the detective, get the autopsy results stat. So the autopsy was performed at 11.48 a.m. the next morning, less than 12 hours from when Craig had called 911. The pathologist, Dr. Hood, immediately noticed petechia the tiny red marks about the size of pinholes that indicate strangulation. Stop. I don't understand how these people think. I mean, I guess it was the 90s. There weren't as many, like, true crime things on. But, like, at this point, you have to be so careful. So the thing about petechia, and I really looked it up, guys. I think that's how you pronounce it. At least I, like, Googled it. And Does it have a PT situation? It's a P-E-T-E-C-H-I-A. Okay. But the Google Translate told me it was petechia. The thing about it is that it doesn't show up for hours after somebody is dead. 
So when the ER doctor was looking at her, she looked completely fine. There was no Didn't sign have any of this. Of it. No, no marks whatsoever. It can take a long time for this to show up. I think Craig was certainly banking on the fact that he knew her parents were very conservative Jews and that they would want to bury her right away. Wow. I, I really do. I think that that was his plan. That was his one shot. In Stephanie's case, you could see them on the skin around her eyes, her forehead, and her eyelids. Whoa. And they're tiny. I mean, they're – you wouldn't yeah, notice them. Yeah, but it's an autopsy. They're it, going in with a microscope and, like, literally picking apart the body to try to find the cause of death. Well, yeah, absolutely. But <sighs> if, if they hadn't done that autopsy, yeah, nobody would have noticed. So Hood also found a scratch and a bruise on the left side of her neck and deep bruising in the soft tissue on the insides of her mm. throat. There were also some bruises that had showed up like after her death on her arms and knees that Hood believed indicated a struggle in the bathtub. Okay. His theory was that Stephanie had been strangled in the tub, not before, and placed in it. So he also ordered a toxicology test to see if any drugs would be found in her system, like maybe... A sedation or something like that. Maybe he had sedated her somehow and tried to submerge her and she fought back. Yep. Furthermore, the lividity found on her body and the condition of her stomach contents suggested that she had been dead closer to 9.30 p.m. rather than the 12.30 (gasps) when Craig had called 911. Oh, my God. You sick fuck. You just had her dead in the bathtub. Which doesn't even make sense to me. No. I mean, he obviously was just trying to think of what to do, like. Yeah. But was this an act of passion or was this planned? What's that face? This is is a face of, I don't want to tell you yet. We're going to find out together. Because that's like, obviously plays into the. Yeah. If it was passion, I can understand just freaking out and being like, I have to concoct a story, you know. Yeah, there was absolutely no sign of drowning, heart attack, or stroke. Dr. Hood could rule conclusively that the cause of death was homicide by strangulation. Wow. Naturally, that left only one suspect. If there are three people in a locked house, one's dead and one's a baby, yeah, that leaves only Craig Rabinowitz discounting a very strong and evil baby. Seriously, I mean, how old is that baby? She's about to turn one. That's a horror movie. That's a horror movie. No yeah. baby could could strangle somebody. No. Yeah, he had really painted himself in a corner by saying no one else had been in the home whatsoever. Yeah, bro, come on. Yeah, he should have at least said, like, I was sleeping, the door was unlocked to open up that door of, it like— It may have been a jar. You know, something like that. But, I mean, I guess three hours wasn't enough to come up with a plan, right, bro? Clearly. The police brought in Craig for an interview, and the plan was to get his story on the record before they revealed what the autopsy indicated. Smart. Yes. They want smart cops. They want to let him dig his own grave and then be like, surprise, we know exactly how she was killed. You jamoke, you know? They said he was, like, really good actor, too. He oh, was, yeah. like, looking very Chameleon, best friend. Even him calling, like, or telling the neighbors, like, call these people. I need all the people I care about and who care about us to be there. Like, that's so that vibe. Like, the gregarious, like, neighborhood guy who's, like, acting like he cares. 100%, yeah. So shady. Yeah, that's absolutely true. He wanted witnesses mm-hmm. to his grief. 
gross. Yeah, so they said, wow, he really seems like he was acting sad. He was giving them the same story that he said before. He was crying about how he couldn't get her out of the bath. And also, Stephanie was not a big girl. Like, he's he's like a 200-pounder. He's like not a little guy. She's like, I think, five foot four. Tiny. Tiny. She's not a big girl at all. You know, and even her friends who 100% supported Craig all the time in every way, they were like, that seems so weird that he couldn't get her out of the bathtub because I feel like at that point where you thought somebody was dying, you'd have this like super strength. Uh, Yeah, especially if it's someone that you actually love. Well, that's why I was talking to Nathaniel about this case and he's like, if it was you, I could lift a car. Yeah. Like I would get super strength. Yeah. You know, I'd be able to flop your body out of a bath 100%. somehow, yeah. you know? Not not only get it out enough where the floor is still dry. Well, also pull the plug. You could also just, there was still bath water in the tub so when weird. the EMTs came in. Yeah, so it's, it's a like, scene. It's a scene. He's creating a scene. A scene, yeah. yeah. Why, did, why didn't wouldn't you like drain, immediately drain oh, the bath water at least, you know? Not good. Craig described his relationship with Stephanie as being just best friends as well as spouses. He talked about how much he respected her as a woman, as a mother, how they had been together for a very long time. Obviously, long-time couples have disputes, but they were all on the up and up in general. In the interview, Craig also revealed that he did have a $1.5 million life insurance policy on Stephanie and thus, a financial motive was revealed. Um, how did he just, like, casually drop that in? Well, they asked him, of course. Okay. I don't think he would have brought it up if they hadn't asked him. Unreal. So Craig had brought his friend Jeff Solomon, the personal injury lawyer, with him. And during the interview, another attorney friend of the couple's group had stopped by to make sure that Craig wasn't in any trouble. Okay. So Craig's with these two attorney friends and they have Craig review in initial his statements. They're like, thank you so much for coming in. We're going to just go in the next room, type up everything that we said, then we're going to give you a copy so you can make sure we got everything correct. Okay. And one thing that I found really interesting that they talk about in this book is that cops have a little trick where some people have gotten off on like appeal being like, I didn't actually read my statements and it was incorrect. Okay. So what they do is that they will sometimes make one thing wrong on purpose. Okay. And so when the person's reading it, and in this case, Craig said, oh, you said this woman's name was Jessica, but it was actually Jane, one of our friends. Okay. They said, okay, just initial that thing and change it. Then later, if they're in trial, they can say, well, he clearly read it because he even corrected that part. Uh, wow. Super smart, right? Yeah. Yeah. So I thought that was really interesting. So, yeah, they have him do that. He he does it. And then he's getting up with his two attorney pals to leave. And they go, oh, by the way, we have the autopsy results back. And he goes, oh, really? And they go, yep. Stephanie didn't die of a heart attack. She didn't die of a stroke. She was strangled to death. And apparently the entire room went dead silent. And then one of his friends, who I think just had no idea, was like, Oh, my God. Stephanie strangled herself? Oh, my God. And the cops were like, uh, yeah, no. Nice try. But, yeah, it was impossible for her to strangle herself in the way that she was killed. Oh, my God. And so those two guys must have been like light bulb moment. Look over at Craig. Instead, you know, they were professional. They were like, this interview's over. 
we're going to go get him the best defense attorney because neither of these attorneys were defense attorneys. And it was just like this shocking moment. And Craig didn't say anything. He just, again, just turned totally white. And they told him, they're like, we're watching you. You can't go anywhere. We're not arresting you right now, but we're looking at you. Whoa. Mm -hmm. So at this point. So where does Haley go? She's still in the home with him. But at this point, Stephanie's parents were basically like living at the home. Okay. I'm just like really going to leave her with. Yeah. I mean, Stephanie's parents ultimately ended up taking Haley. Okay. And they were also at this point sitting Shiva, which is, of course, the week-long mourning period in Judaism for close relatives and very close friends. Yeah. Where they just literally mourn. That's it. Exactly. Yeah. So uh, that's what they were doing. So Haley was being taken care of by everybody who was there in the home. Good. So this was also a, a really bad time for the entire family too, because obviously they're mourning and her husband's being brought into the police station. They're supposed to be just sitting and grieving. Did they find out what the cops knew? Eventually, yes. Not at this point, not this first one. Okay. But the cops at the, also at this point are trying to figure out why this happened. Okay. So they are also interviewing the friends and family and so far, they can't find any evidence that there was any infidelity, that there was any issues in the relationship. I mean, they haven't dug into the finances that much at this point, but on the level, they didn't know of any okay. money problems. So they basically are like, we need to do some more digging in because this is our only indication that he is the killer is that there was no one else in the home and yeah. the medical examiner says she died by strangulation. Yeah. That's it. They go in to dig into it and the first thing that they want to do is actually break down Stephanie's parents a little bit, even though they're grieving, by saying, hey, we got the medical report back. Yeah. Your daughter died by strangulation. Yeah. Craig was the only one in the home. Are you sure they had a good relationship? Yeah. And her parents were like, they had a wonderful relationship. We don't believe you. We don't believe that Craig killed her. We absolutely don't believe it. So that's why they're still like in the home. And they're still yeah. in the home. They even contributed money to his legal team after he was like legally in trouble and needed a defense attorney. Whoa. Yeah. And his friends were too. They were all like, this is a setup. The medical examiner was wrong. This There's no way that everybody's best friend, Craig Rabinowitz, would do this to the light of his life, Stephanie. Nobody knew of any girlfriend. Nobody knew of any money problems. Nobody- Yeah, but most people don't know about girlfriends and money problems. Like- I don't know, but I feel like there's always somebody. I don't know. I feel like money has so much shame attached to it. I don't think everyone knows about money problems. I think sometimes guys know about girls because of like- guy shit and like locker room talk and they're like, yo, I'm blah, yes. blah, blah. You know I, I, I mean? think the money stuff I can see nobody knowing about. Yeah, people sweep that under the rug so much more. But Especially when people he's like are the, getting sex, they like to talk about it. Boys, when boys are getting sex. Yes, but I feel like even, <laughs> I would never have an affair on Nathaniel ever in a million years. But if I was, I would tell you. Yeah, if yeah. you didn't, I would be upset and then I would like literally beat your ass if you ever did. <laughs> I know you would. <laughs> I mean, I would tell you so you would stop me yeah, probably. Yeah, exactly. 
So they decide to do another search and they're like, we need to search the household deep dive. and do a deep dive. Yeah. And we also need to get in their financial records. So upon the new search, the police seized literally every financial document they could get their hands on. They took checkbooks for both CNC supplies as well as Craig and Stephanie's joint account. They took bills. They took any sort of official correspondence as well as a strange book they found in the house called How We Die that was essentially a very long, very detailed description of the process the body goes through before, during, and after the time of death. What? Yeah. It just talked about, like, when rigor sits in and all this stuff. So if this was premeditated, he did a very poor job of letting the body sit there for three hours. Oh, my God. So they start digging into the Rabinowitz's finances with a forensic accountant, and they find a few things out. Number one, Craig had said that the life insurance policies on Stephanie would pay out at $1.5 million, which was already a crazy high sum, but actually the policies would total $1.88 million, nearly $2 million. In the 90s. In the 90s. Whoa. And number two, despite supposedly having two professional incomes, you know where I'm going with this one. Stephanie and Craig's house was mortgaged to the hilt. They had almost nothing in their savings other than the money that Stephanie had just transferred from her stock portfolio. That 8K. Yep. And their financial situation did seem dire. Which brings us to number three, Craig's alleged business C&C Supplies. The police could find no evidence that the business actually existed. Shut the fuck up. There was no warehouses of gloves. There was no inventory, obviously. No invoices. Was it drugs? Or was he doing drugs? Purchase was he selling records? Drugs? Was he selling drugs? I, I'm not going to tell you yet. <gasps> ah! There was no sales records. Like, what are the supplies and where are they, Craig, of CNC supplies? So it wasn't just the police who were looking into Craig's lies about his business. The media was digging into the story as well. Uh-oh. Yeah. So the Philadelphia Inquirer pointed out that the local telephone directory did not contain a listing for CNC, that telephone information had no number for the business, and that the company was not recognized among the more than 2,000 members of the Latex Advisors Association, the industry's trade organization. The Daily News said that little is known about his work and that there were no records of bankruptcies, liens, or judgments against him. Uh-oh. Well, the police are trying to sort out all of the finances and find out exactly what CNC Supplies was a front for, they decided to go ahead and arrest Craig based largely on the medical examiner's report. Okay. And his own words that no one else was in the home, you know? Yeah, so they can do that? Yep. So on May 5th, 1997, on the day that they laid Stephanie to rest and only a couple days after Haley's first birthday, Craig Rabinowitz was arrested and charged with first-degree murder. After the news of Craig's arrest hit the media, the cops got an anonymous phone call that said that Craig had a special friend whose presence may speak to motive. The guy calling had a girlfriend who worked as an exotic dancer. Oh, God. Oh, God. At a strip club called Delilah's Den. Oh, God. <laughs> and he knew that Craig was very involved with another dancer named Summer. 
Have you heard of tretinoin? Spironolactone? Or what about clindamycin? We may not be able to pronounce these ingredients, but we can tell you what they do. Tretinoin unclogs pores and even skin tones. Spironolactone targets hormonal acne. Clindamycin fights acne-causing bacteria and inflammation. I didn't know what they were either until I got my own prescription acne treatment from Apostrophe, the sponsor of this episode. Apostrophe is a prescription skincare company that offers science-backed oral and topical medications that are clinically proven to help clear acne. Apostrophe connects you with a board-certified dermatologist who will create a personalized treatment plan that is perfectly tailored to your unique skin. Simply fill out Apostrophe's online quiz about your skin goals and medical history, then snap a few selfies and your dermatologist will create your customized treatment plan. Apostrophe treats all types of acne, from hormonal acne to facial acne and even chestnut, backne, and buttony. They treat breakouts from head to toe. Jesse, using apostrophe was so simple and convenient. Seriously, knowing I was interacting with a real dermatologist to have a plan tailored to me exactly, quickly, and easily was so excellent. We have a special deal for our audience. Save $15 off your first visit with an apostrophe provider at apostrophe.com slash lovemurder when you use our code lovemurder. This code is only available to our listeners. To get started, just go to apostrophe.com slash lovemurder and click begin visit. Then use our code lovemurder at sign up and you'll get your first visit for only $5. That's A-P-O-S-T-R-O-P-H-E dot com slash lovemurder. And use that code lovemurder to get your dermatologist crafted treatment plan for $5. And we thank Apostrophe for sponsoring the podcast. The holidays are approaching and you may be thinking about how you're going to save some extra money. Well, I've got a solution that maybe you haven't thought of. Consolidate your high interest credit card balances to a lower rate and save with Lightstream. Lightstream offers credit card consolidation loans with rates starting at 4.98% APR with auto pay and excellent credit. Much lower than the national average interest on credit cards of over 19% APR plus your rate is fixed, so as rates continue to rise, your low rate won't budge. There are no fees, and you can even get your money as soon as the day you apply. It's really so easy, Andy. Their website is incredibly intuitive. You just select a loan purpose, your desired amount, and you're off to the races. Just for our listeners, apply now to get a special interest rate discount and save even more. The only way to get this discount is to go to lightstream.com lovemurder. That's L-I-G-H-T-S-T-R-E-A-M dot com slash lovemurder. Subject to credit approval, rates range from 4.98% APR to 19.99% APR and include 0.5% auto pay discount. Lowest rate requires excellent credit. Terms and conditions apply and offers are subject to change without notice. Visit lightstream.com slash lovemurder for more information. This holiday season, I want to give a gift to my loved ones that makes them feel special and unique, just like the relationships we share. That's why I'm giving everyone I care about StoryWorth. StoryWorth is an online service that helps you and your loved ones preserve precious memories and stories for years to come. It is a thoughtful and meaningful gift that connects you with those who matter most. Every week, StoryWorth emails your relative or friend a thought-provoking question of your choice from their vast pool of possible options. Each unique prompt asks questions you've never thought to ask, like, 
what's the bravest thing you've ever done in your life? Or if you could see into the future, what would you want to find out? These questions are so interesting, Andy. I love the questions about family traditions and long ago experiences that are just so incredibly meaningful. After one year, StoryWorth will compile all of your loved ones' stories, including photos, into a beautiful keepsake book that you'll be able to share and revisit for generations to come. We love revisiting the book every year at the holidays. It makes a wonderful time even more special. Yep. And for us, reading the weekly stories helps us connect with loved ones, no matter how near or far apart we are. I feel like it's going to be so amazing getting these done for our kids and seeing how they grow and everything. And it makes me think about all of the old photo books that we look at of your parents. 100%. It's going to be like the new version of that. I think so too. With StoryWorth, we are giving those we love a most thoughtful personal gift from the heart and preserving their memories and stories for years to come. Go to storyworth.com slash lovemurder and save $10 on your first purchase. That's storyworth.com slash lovemurder to save $10 on your first purchase. Oh, God. Okay, so what does CNC actually stand for? Now, this is the first whiff of infidelity anywhere in this case. Like I said, not a single yeah. one of Craig's closest friends had or any family. idea. Yeah. And I guess when they were interviewed about specifically Delilah's den, they all said, oh, my God, there was this one story he told us where he was, like, talking to the guys at a barbecue or something. And he was like, have you guys ever been to Delilah's den? And they were like, no, that's not our scene. These were, like, very – conservative people. Yeah, or just decent human beings. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and they were like, no, no, bro. And he's like, oh, well, I just had to go there because I had to take this like client from New York there and it was like so wild and like he just totally played it off. Yeah. But they used to like make fun of him for it. Like, oh, you take people you go to business with to strip clubs, you're that guy and stuff. And so it became like a running joke. But like, it seems like at some point he did like put out the feelers. Yeah. he pl- And then he played it off. He and, let it roll right off his back. And then he totally played it off. Like, yeah. oh, it was so gross that he had to take this client there. Yeah. So they're like, uh, con man. please tell us more, sir. So they end up convincing this guy to meet up in person. And they do that because they wanted to, like, check out if it's just, like, a wacko on the phone or if it's legit. And he was legit. Like, he genuinely, like, brought his girlfriend. And she's like, yeah, this is, like, legit. I don't want to get involved, obviously. Don't use my name. But, like, she's seeing this guy. And when I saw he was arrested for killing his wife, I can't help but wonder. That's amazing that she came forward. Yeah. So they came forward. And then the police decide to go on down to Delilah's den. To do some interviewing, which they weren't real butthurt about that. They're like, oh, the hardship of the job. We got to go, you know, see some naked ladies here. Is it topless or full nude? I think it was full nude. (laughs) So, yeah. They did say that it was one of the more upscale clubs. Yeah, Delilah's Den is not a bad name. No, it's great. So, I think it was one of the more upscale clubs. It seems like also... They had a racket going on here, and Craig was dropping some serious coin on Summer. So Ken Englade, in his book, broke down through conversations with the detectives about how (laughs) these clubs, specifically this one, made its money. And it is wild. I did not know this about gentlemen's clubs. 
So at Delilah's in 1997, a couch dance, which is basically not a lap dance. It was like, sure, you're sitting on a couch and they're dancing like for you, but not on you. That cost $25, which is more like $40 in today's money. Not bad. Not bad at all. A lap dance where they actually like kind of ground on you for a little bit. You had to pay $100, which is more like $170 in today's money. But there was also the champagne room. To get into the champagne room, obviously you have to buy a bottle of champagne, which in 1997, the cheapest bottle you could get was an $80 bottle of Prosecco, which you know they got for for five bucks. Yeah, but... Yeah. So that You're got not paying you, for the champagne. You got into it. But at, also at Delilah's, you also had to have a card that proved you were a good customer. Like a gold card. Exactly. So here's from everybody's best friend. The guys who frequent the champagne room spend a lot of money. To save them from worrying about carrying wads of cash, the club issued its own script called Delilah's Dollars. Okay, love. The way that it worked is this. A customer used his credit card to purchase dollars, which he can then use instead of cash. Yeah. Of course, there's a charge, 15%. For every dollar the customer buys, his credit card is charged $1.15. Okay, I was going to think it was going to be opposite. That's crazy. Dancers turn the dollars in and get the face value of the script minus 15%. In other words, Delilah's makes 15 cents for every dollar they sell and another 15 cents on every dollar they buy. Yeah. The club pockets 30% on each dollar transaction. Wow. Wow, 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 wow. Yeah, not a bad business. So they thought that was pretty clever. The other thing that Delilah's did, which I think a lot of like gentlemen's clubs do, is that instead of obviously on these credit card receipts, it didn't say Delilah's Den. It said D&D Restaurant. Like CNC. Like CNC. So the police interviewed a manager and some of the dancers, and they confirmed that Craig Rabinowitz was a big time regular who spent a lot of dough on summer. So while the detectives are at Delilah's, a reporter actually tailed them. Oh my God. Yeah. So it was really funny because one of the detectives is talking about this, and he's like in the bathroom. And you know how guys don't talk to each other at the urinals. No, it's fucking weird. Yeah, it's like a super no-no. Yeah. I mean, I don't talk to girls in other stalls unless I need toilet paper. <laughs> yeah, but it would be very random if you're like, hey, over there, how you doing? Like, it's just not, it's not a place for conversation. No, it's not. And I mean, at least we have a wall between us. Yeah, you can talk at the sink. Yeah. So one of the detectives was taking a league and this guy who he didn't recognize was like, so what's going on? Why are you here? What's up? And the guy was like, Super weird. He was like, is this guy like picking me up or something at a strip club? What's going on? So he walked out and he was like, dude, that guy, do you see that guy over there? He just like was talking to me while I was at the urinal in a really creepy way. And the other detective was like, oh shit, that guy's a reporter. I know him. Another reporter? No, like the other detective was like, that's a reporter. Got it, got it, got it. Okay, okay. So he's like, that guy's a reporter. And of course, oh my God, they left and the reporter interviewed all of the dancers and like the manager and was like, why are the cops here? Is it to do with the Craig Rabinowitz case? What's going on? And that story broke almost immediately. Of course. It's like hot cakes. Hot cakes. So this was when Stephanie's friends and family were finally like, oh, shit. 
maybe he really did. C and C might have been doing a little bit of D and D. Either way, there's lots of C and D's going in. There's there's a few ways we could go with this. Yeah. So (laughs) basically, her family at this point and their close friends were like, "Uh oh, uh oh, okay, this is wrong because." We would have never thought this in a million years. No. And we also wouldn't have thought that he killed her. But now that we know he was cheating on her potentially with an exotic and dancer. he tried to pitch that out and no one was biting on it. Mm-hmm. So they're like, maybe we need to see about getting our checks back for supporting his legal efforts. The CNC. Yeah. So detectives then went to Summer, who was actually a 24-year-old single mother named Shannon. Oh, no. And she was a little evasive. She was kind of shady about the whole thing. She was clearly nervous. Of course. Which I understand. She did agree to meet with them. But then when they showed up, she was like, actually, I'm waiting for my attorney to get here. So they had to like wait outside on her porch for two hours for her attorney to get yeah, there. Yeah, but also she probably like just hired whoever she could, you know, like. Yeah. And then at, then at some point her boyfriend showed up. And her boyfriend's like, I'm staying with her in the interview. And they were like, no, per attorney's here. That's enough. You need to leave because she's not going to be honest with us about what she was doing with this guy, if this big burly. I mean, could you imagine going through this at 24? No. No. It's like baby. Like your baby. Yeah. So she's going through this. She's she's not really being 100% honest in all of her answers, they feel like. Well, especially if her boyfriend's there too. Yeah, and they did manage to get the boyfriend to leave, but he was very huffy about it. But her story was that Craig was simply a friend and a really good regular customer. Okay. And that they were not having a sexual relationship of any kind. Like I said, she was like, I have a boyfriend. That's not my game. I'm just working at the club to make money, you know? And so she claimed that Craig had initially come into Delilah's for a lap dance, but after he became a regular, they would simply go to the champagne room to talk. So she said that it was like she never even danced for him again after that first time. They would literally go in and like talk about their lives. And, you know, in Japan, they have these places called girl bars. I think that's what they're called, girl bars, where you like literally pay money to go and talk to women. I mean, I don't think that's like, totally uncommon. I know like just being a bartender, which is very different, but like I know people would come in and like spend a couple hundred dollars on a bottle of wine and just want to talk and be like, hey, can you have some of this wine? And usually it wasn't allowed, but like if they opened a $200 bottle, my boss would be like, you can have like half a glass, you know? Yeah. Like I I know that there was situations where people were like, just wanted to chat with you. You know, I had people come in and be like, you know, I want to have a three-course meal with wine pairings, and it'd be cool if you could chat with me while I'm doing it yep. to feel like I'm having a fine dining experience, you yeah. know? Yeah. And that never bothered me when I was bartending or serving, ever. No, exactly. And, and you know, I don't even—I can't even imagine the actual politics behind doing something like being an exotic dancer where it seems like it's 90% psychological and 10% body, you know? Yeah, yeah. Maybe maybe a little bit more than that. <laughs> I guess more body than that. But still, you know what I'm saying? Yes, yes. Is that most of it, like the women that make a lot of money are the ones that are really persuasive and personable, not just have a great body. And actually like cultivating the relationships with the customers. Yes, that they're building a, yes. a regular yeah. situation. Business, you know, where they don't have to do lamp dances all the time. They can just have conversations and make bank. Yes, because people care about them. Yeah. So she said that, they were only in the champagne room to talk, and the only time that she had ever seen Craig outside of the club was in January of 1997 Uh-oh. when he had bought her 8,000 
$500 worth of new furniture as a housewarming present, which is more like 14 grand today. Which is exactly the savings account that, mm-hmm. yeah, that's disgusting. Summer said he came in regularly with presents, flowers, diamond earrings, a tennis bracelet, as well as a pearl Tiffany necklace. Fucked up. That's fucked up. Mm-hmm. Summer was aware that Craig was married but said that he claimed that the marriage wasn't working out, mostly due to the fact that Stephanie didn't want to have sex as often after the baby was born. Oh, my God. I cannot impress upon you how little I care for that reason. How far your eyes are rolling Uh, in the back of your head. I can officially see behind me right now because my eyes are so backwards. Wow, what a piece of shit what a piece of shit after the baby came she's like we just don't have much of a sex life what did summer think about that though i mean i don't think it was her job she was just to young care. and like yeah she was and young working. and it was her job yeah. and this guy was giving her stuff and giving her money and showing up and being a regular customer and you know that's i don't i i think but then when she saw that his wife was dead she was like ah yeah. Okay. But she wanted nothing to do with it. She didn't come forward to the police and be like, hey, I have some information. She was like, I hope the police never come to me. And when they did, she was scared as shit. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. So she was not, I, I wouldn't call her like upstanding in all of this. Yeah. She was trying to like hide her tracks as much as possible. But the other thing is like, if you said, no, you can't be a regular customer of mine because you have a wife you're mean to, you wouldn't have any customers. You know. Like that. <laughs> most of those guys are probably married. So it's not exactly like she could say like, wow, I think that you are living in a moral gray area that I don't approve of. I would like you to not come in and spend thousands of dollars amazing, on me. It'd <laughs> <That'd laughs> yeah. be amazing. Yeah. That was not going to happen. She also said that he seemed unhappy, but he never talked about wanting his wife dead. He, they asked her, like, did he ever talk about marrying you? And she was like, he said things like, you would make such a perfect wife. You're such a wonderful woman. I would love to be married to somebody like you. But he never said straight up, like, yeah. if my wife died, I'd marry you. Yeah. Or I wish my wife was dead and I'd marry which you. Which we've heard before. Yeah, which we've actually heard before. Yeah. And she said that he said none of those things. And so they concluded the interview and they were like, hey, Summer, like, thank you so much. Hey, Shannon, rather. I know that this was really hard on yeah. you. This is uncomfortable. And also, you probably lost your best customer. Yeah. So that's hard. And apparently she was like, oh, <laughs> he's not my best customer. Which I'm like, he was dropping like between one and $3,000 a week, bringing her Tiffany necklaces, diamond bracelets, diamond earrings, buying her what is in today's money, $14,000 of furniture. And he wasn't her best customer. Okay, that's amazing. (laughs) I was like, she must be hot. Damn, girl. You can find pictures of her online. Yeah, she's, she's good looking. So, of course, they absolutely want to find out where all of this money is coming from that he was giving to uh, Stephanie Summer. and CNC. But he's giving more to her than even Stephanie makes in a year at this point because drugs. she was down to halftime. Drugs. Well, that's what they were trying to find out. Like, okay, so is CNC drugs? Is, is it money laundering? Is what, it are, what is he doing? Crack. Whoa, that would be a good one. Yeah. yeah, so it just didn't make sense. They're like, okay, we have to delve even further into. Everything about Craig. Like, deep dive, deep dive. Deep dive, deep dive, double background check. Like, let's do this thing. And 
they found out some shit. Four and a half years earlier, when Craig was 29 and had only been married to Stephanie for about two years or so, he was busted for being a frequent patron of an escort service slash call girl operation in Philadelphia that was, get this, run by a police lieutenant named Joseph Kelly and his wife, Jane. Corruption. Wow. Wow. Seriously, wow. Wow. The service was called J.P. Tiffany's. Jesse Prey Tiffany's? <laughs> yes. I was... I was 12 years old, but I was a part of it. And it provided sex on demand, either at the client's home or at their own location in Center City. Craig had even dated Jane Kelly herself four or five times, but he did not end up sharing. Wait, what do you mean dated her four or five times? That means they had a sexual experience four or five times, yeah. He admitted to this later, but he did not say what they did exactly, like what kind of sexual exchange they had. He did, however, admit to being a frequent client of a particular woman pseudonymed Taylor, who, not so coincidentally, was a thin young blonde with an enhanced chest just like Summer. For $150, he would go to J.P. Tiffany's location and get a shower, a massage, and a happy ending. Just H.J.? Just an H.J. No, actually, sorry. It was an O.J. Mm. An oral job. You mean a B.J. A B.J. You wow. ain't going call an oral wow. job? <laughs> Guys, wow. Guys, in case you didn't wonder how long I was out of the game, I just called a B.J. an O.J. God, I feel bad for my husband, apparently. I feel apparently. bad for you. <laughs> an O.J. Well, I mean, I think oral job is probably a better word than blow job. Yeah, it's like a scientific term. No one uses it sexually. Yeah, but nobody blows on it. I'm really glad you called me out on that because that would have been very unclear to listeners. So anyway, for $150, guys, he got a shower, a massage, and a blow job, okay? So why hadn't Stephanie or either of their families ever found out about this? Why would he go around telling people that? But if he was arrested, people would have found out. Maybe. Well, when Craig was busted, he agreed to testify against Jane Kelly in exchange for full immunity. Thus, no charges, no arrest record, nada. Yeah, because it was internal. Yeah, they probably wanted to hush-hush it up, too. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So they had a bail hearing, and the defense attorneys tried to argue that Craig Rabinowitz was this upstanding family man with ties to the local business community (laughs) and the full support of his family as well as Stephanie's. ADA Bruce Castor was like, uh, yeah, no, he has no business. CNC is a total sham. He was in complete debt. He can't put up his house for collateral for bail anyway because it's already over mortgaged. He's already been implicated as a frequent solicitor of sex, and we have proof that he's been spending in the neighborhood of one to three thousand dollars a week at a gentleman's club. On summer. On summer, not even counting the jewelry, furniture, and other gifts he's been giving to a woman who was decidedly not his wife. So the judge was like, oh, yeah. <laughs> and the ADA was like, also, we don't know where this money is coming from that he spent on her, so he might have thick pockets. Yeah. So you should set the bail real high. And the judge seemed inclined to agree with him because he set it at $5 million. Holy shitballs. <laughs> Suffice to say, Greg stayed in jail. 
So by now, the Newmans and Stephanie and Craig's remaining friends finally saw him for what he truly was. I see your true colors shining through. Yes, he was a creep in a family man's suit. Oh. So the police get yet another search warrant for the Rabinowitz's mainline home because they were determined to get to the bottom of Craig's befuddling finances. And this time they discovered a secret ceiling panel in Craig's closet. What? Yeah. Like a drop ceiling situation? It was like a false panel situation. Okay. Yeah. Inside, when they like got into the panel and reached over, there was a shopping bag that contained porno mags. I mean, not the worst thing ever or whatever. I know. Just so, that's like such a teenage move to yeah. hide it in your secret ceiling. Like, just keep them in your drawer. Like, it's not a big deal. <laughs> like, you have to reach all the way up there every time you want to like... You know? I think he just hid them because he knew the police were searching his house. Oh, really? Yeah, because they had already searched his house twice before. Loser. Yeah. But that doesn't matter. They also found a wallet with $7,800 in it. Gross. So he obviously had some cash on him. They also found some receipts. The receipts were for various presents Craig had bought summer, including the $2,000 pearl necklace from I'm Tiffany. Unreal. Unreal. Yeah, it was like $1,989, I guess. That's like 3000 now, right? Yeah, I would That's say so. That's so fucked. That's yeah. so fucked. Yep, there was also- You have a daughter. Thousands of dollars in charges from Bloomingdale's and Saks for gifts he gave her. Wow. Most heinously, however, Andy, oh was a receipt from a high-end center city pawn shop that showed that he had pawned Stephanie's engagement and wedding ring the day after her murder. <sighs> You're not going to just throw that out, buddy? It's so, so crazy. Well, he had to keep the receipt if he wanted to ever get it back. I don't know if that was the plan. But also, apparently, his friends said that he had told them that he was planning on burying Stephanie with her wedding jewelry, which he was never planning to do because he had already pawned it. But I think he was trying to say that's what he did because it was a closed casket. And, and that's why they would never wonder, like, what happened to her jewelry. Wow. And his friends, the women were like, you can't do that to your daughter. Your daughter deserves that jewelry. That's her oh, inheritance. Oh, my God. That's part of her mother. You're not going to get rid of her mother's engagement ring. That's something she can get married with someday. And he did it anyway. That's disgusting. Disgusting. Most important to the police, however, was a note in Craig's handwriting that included names written with numbers under two columns out and in. Immediately, the detectives recognized some of the names as Craig's close friends, the Newmans, and Craig's own mother. So they go around and interview all of the people on the list, and they find out that they were all the people who had made investments in CNC supplies. Okay. Turns out that Craig had been running a classic Ponzi scheme where he used new investors' money to pay off old investors. Oh my God. So he was using all of their friends and yeah. family, but also other people he knew. And so he would make it look like it was profitable. So when he got a new investor, he would use some of the money to give a return to the old investors. Even if it's like a percentage of the money. Exactly. Yeah. So he never had a business at all. There was no product. There was no real business. It was entirely a scam. He had managed to stay on top of it for a few years, it looks like. And he did lose control after he met Summer. 
So they looked uh, up. Yeah. Andy, they looked up Delilah's records. He had spent $30,000 just using his credit card in three months at Delilah's. His entire wife's annual salary in three months, not counting gifts and cash she gave her. It would be really hard for me to believe that they didn't have sex. Very, very hard to believe that they didn't have sex, which we're going to get into in a little bit. So they're looking at this sheet, and there was also a few more notations. There was something that looked like INS, which they figured out stood for insurance. Because it had $1.8 million under it. And then he basically wrote down, like, if I pay back all of my investors, which was like a half million dollars. Yeah, that's how much he owed to people. I'll end up with this much. So I'll still get, like, a cool $1.3 million, And that would be obviously enough to Watch. start a nice little life with Summer if that's what he wanted to. And this was finally the evidence they needed to show the motive because yeah. clearly he had worked out all of the figures and they could show that he was deeply in debt and that he absolutely needed to kill his wife to get this big payday, yeah. but also not have his shady dealings and double life revealed. Not to mention that they have this proof that it was completely premeditated. Yeah. So the toxicology report finally came back and it showed that Stephanie had Ambien in her system. Ambien that had been prescribed to Craig Rabinowitz not too long before her murder. Oh, my God. Not to Stephanie, to Craig. So now the detectives and the ADA feel like they have a pretty good idea of what happened here. Craig, desperate for money, as to not be exposed for his Ponzi scheme and addiction to a certain exotic dancer, hatched a terrible scheme to kill his wonderful hardworking, beloved wife for money to bail himself out of his own problems. His intention was to knock her out with Ambien and then drown her in the tub trying to make it look like an accidental drowning. Like she took Ambien, took a bath, fell asleep, drowned, right? That was the plan. Only Stephanie wasn't completely knocked out. And when he started trying to submerge her in the tub, she fought back. And that's what they believe based on the medical examiner's report that showed there was bruising consistent with like if you banged on the Mm -hmm. side of a bathtub. Yeah. His intention was to knock her out with Ambien and then drown her in the tub, making it look like an accident. Only Stephanie wasn't totally knocked out and managed to fight back once placed in the tub. She struggled and Craig was forced to strangle her to death, which was not the plan. Most likely while Stephanie, through an ambient cloud, realized that the love of her life since she was 16 years old and the father of her child was killing her. Unreal. Reprehensible. So the prosecution geared up for the trial, accumulating all the witnesses and evidence to prove this narrative. They also found out that Craig had spent thousands of dollars on high-end hotels, like the presidential suite at the Marriott, multiple visits to the Four Seasons, as well as a few check-ins at the Inn of the Dove, a specialty hotel with individual cottages marketed towards honeymooners that included jacuzzi tubs and fireplaces in each room. Oh my God, so rude. All of the check-in staff reported that there were two occupants noted in the reservation. They didn't, like, 
know enough to say I could recognize this woman conclusively. Okay. But they said that there was two people and each reservation said there was going to be two people in the room. We certainly know that it wasn't Stephanie who was enjoying these romantic overnights. Unreal. And the police could also find no evidence of any other mistresses. So, Andy, I'm inclined to agree with you that she was not being 100% truthful when she said they didn't see each other outside of the club and they didn't have a sexual relationship. Yeah. He's buying her all that shit. Yeah. And she was also living with her parents. I think she had provided an apartment for them, too, at this point. So her parents were there. Her boyfriend's trying to be in the interview. She just doesn't want to admit it. And, you know, I don't fault her for that. But you're also— it's a murder investigation. You got to own up to what happened. Yeah, she should have gone down to the station and done And an with her attorney, yeah. you know, and said, we want to keep this confidential. confidential. Yep. But yeah, this happened. Speaking of Summer, she was a nightmare witness for the prosecution. She was flighty, uncooperative. She changed the details of her story several times. Again, like what we said, she's young. She's nervous. Yeah. She doesn't want to be involved in this. They had no reason to believe that she was at all involved in the murder. Okay. They were a little concerned because she, like, randomly, when they asked her to testify, she was like, well, I want immunity. And they're like, for what? You didn't do anything. Are you going to—do you have something to tell us that you did that you need immunity for? You know? And ultimately, they decided that they weren't going to call her up as a witness at all because she was so unreliable and inconsistent that it would not have helped their case at all. And they're like, we have enough with his finances. We have his records. They had other witnesses that put him at the club. They didn't actually need her testimony. And so the trial kicked off in October of 1997 with jury selection and the ADA was jazzed. Bruce Castor Jr., this was like going to be a a trial that made yeah. his life. Like he's like, this is, I'm going to become the district attorney with this case because this is huge. I got this in the bag. I got this scumbag dead to rights. I know it. Like he was like pumped up here. So everyone was really surprised when on the first day of testimony, the defense attorneys came in and said, This is going to be a short proceeding today as our client is changing his plea to guilty. And we'd like to see what we can work out with the state. So obviously the prosecution doesn't need to give them anything. Yeah. The only deal they made was that they would take the death penalty off the table, which in Pennsylvania, they haven't, you know, executed anyone in decades and decades. Like he wasn't going to get killed anyway. Okay. And they're like, you can say you're guilty, but we're going to sentence you to life in prison without the possibility of parole ever. And he took it. Holy shit. Mm-hmm. Because he's that guilty. He's that wow. guilty. Even worse, he can't even appeal it as part of the deal. He Good. can't appeal it. Whew. So, oh, by the way, that's an LWAP alert. <laughs> I was talking to somebody on Instagram and they're like, you guys did this episode and you didn't say LWAP. But I was like, oh man, that was a missed opportunity. for anyone who's doing the drinking game. Yeah, for anyone doing the drinking game at home. (laughs) LWAP alert. So in Pennsylvania, if a defendant changes their plea, they have to explain their decision in open court. Basically, they do this so that later on there can't be an appeal being like, my attorneys forced me to do it or the other side forced me to do it. If they say in their own vernacular in open court, like why they're changing their plea, then it it sticks better, you know? So here's what this dirtbag had to say. 
I want to say that I'm guilty of these charges and accept and take full responsibility for my wife's death. I have brought enough hurt and detestation. I think he meant devastation. It says detestation. Okay, well, he can't even talk. Yeah, to all of you. This has come to an end. I realize it will never end, but this has to end now. Enough is enough. I am so deeply sorry for what I have done. Enough is enough? Like you get to fucking call that? Yeah. Oh my and God, then, this is, I'm like at an eight right now. Oh, you're going to get up to a 10 because he's such a POS. Then he starts to cry. It would take a thousand lifetimes to express the remorse I feel. I broke so many people's hearts, including my own. I don't give a fuck about your heart. Hearts that will never be repaired. There will always be a hole in everyone's heart because of what I have done. Yeah. Right now, Haley is thankfully unaware of what has happened. But every day she grows up, there will come a time that she knows what happened. His lawyers— Yeah, because of you. Because of what you did, sir. His lawyers, he added, had explained to him that he would not be able to appeal his sentence. That in itself would be a kindness to his daughter. An appeal down the road would bring all of this out in the open, he said, adding that he was unwilling for that to happen. I've already done the worst thing I could do to her, and I would never do anything that I thought would cause her more pain. So basically at this point, his attorney and the prosecutor get to ask him some questions. Okay. So his attorney, a lawyer named Simone, asked, what was it that led you to this decision? He said, two nights ago, while I was asleep in my cell— I had a dream. In the dream, he continued, he was back in the house he had grown up in, a place where nothing bad had ever happened, he said. And he was standing in the hallway and getting his bearings when he heard someone calling his name. It was Stephanie. Come here, she beckoned. We want to talk to you. Following the sound of her voice, Rabinowitz said, he dream walked into the breakfast room where Stephanie was sitting at the table with his father, Henry who had died four years before, and his father-in-law, Lou Newman, who had died on September 28th of cancer. Okay. Which had also been Rabinowitz's 34th birthday. Usually, he told the court, my dreams are not that vivid, but this was so vivid. Stephanie spoke directly to him. Craig, sit down. We want to talk to you. Stunned, he said he collapsed into a chair and pulled himself forward, resting his hands on the tabletop. They put their hands on my hand and said, Craig, it's time to do what's right. It's time for you to do the right thing. And I hope today, I think today, that I've done the right thing. And that's why I've done this. Yeah, that's called his conscience. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, Mm -hmm. that's like, that should have happened before he killed his innocent, beautiful wife. And the ADA believed none of this. He was like, you're a piece of shit. And he got up and he was like, why'd you do it? Why'd you kill your wife? And just was like straight to the point. And he was like, Mr. Castor, that's something I think about and I wonder about every moment oh of my every God. day. And what is this, a journal entry? Yeah. He like said, I've talked about it with my attorneys and we believe that my life had become a sham and a fraud and I went through a moral disconnect. I lost my ability to know right from wrong. Right became wrong and wrong became Right. He goes on and on and on and on and on. It's and not it's, even worth It's reading. not worth yeah. me reading you guys this whole statement. Uh, but it was very clear to the prosecution, to the attorneys, to Stephanie's loved ones, that still to the end, he was trying to like play this like nice guy card, being like, I decided to do the right thing and tell you the truth. I want to save Haley from this 
moment of too late. It's too late. You can't pretend to be the nice guy at this point, you know? Unreal. Yeah. They they think basically it was that of him trying to preserve what was left yeah. of his image. Character. And also, like, he couldn't listen to it. He couldn't go through a trial that could be weeks and weeks long of everybody talking about his Ponzi scheme, his relationship with this exotic dancer that yeah. he spent all of this money on when his own wife was suffering. You know, they were like, he is such a narcissist that it probably was worth going to prison for the rest of his life. Then hearing all that. Yeah. Then hearing all of it and then having his daughter someday yeah. look at the record and the court transcripts of what everybody said about it. Yeah. It was better that he just say, I did a bad thing. I'm not going to go into details about it, but right now I'm doing the right thing. You know? Whew. So Craig is still alive. He is now 58, and he's still behind bars in Pennsylvania, where he will remain for the rest of his natural life. Summer, a.k.a. Shannon, went on to try to have an acting career. On December 4th of the same year of the murder, and shortly after Craig was sentenced to life, it was announced that Summer would have a starring role in a dinner theater production of an apparently legitimate stage play called Porno Stars at Home. However, only two weeks after the show opened, she was fired from the production because she was unwilling to do publicity for the show. Okay. Craig's once tight circle of friends no longer have any contact with him. He has apparently sent letters trying to explain, to apologize, to beg forgiveness, but no one is interested in his sob stories. Not only did they lose thousands and thousands of dollars in his Ponzi scheme, Way more importantly, they lost a beloved friend and the loving mother of little Haley. Oh my God, seriously. He also apparently tried to, you know when somebody calls you from prison, you have to accept the charges? Yeah. He tried to call ADA Bruce Castor. And Bruce Castor's like, not interested, hung up. No, uh, fuck off. He's like, there's nothing we have to talk about anymore. So Haley ended up being raised by Ira, Stephanie's brother, and also Anne Newman. Okay, that's amazing. Yeah as well as the Rubinowitz's close friends who were like godparents to her. And Craig's mother, Joyce, also remained a big part of the girl's life. That's great. Yeah. I think that's really incredible. Like, we talk about these cases so often where there's a, these children are traumatized. Yeah, and then there's, there's like a, such a bad divide, yeah. A bitter custody dispute, yeah. which I don't blame the families of the victims. No. Because you don't want, you know, somebody who raised a murderer raising your grandchild. No, but— there's circumstances where that's not the case. Exactly. And this was a case where Craig tricked everyone. And there yeah. was no there was no real evidence of anything that could have made Craig the way he was. No. You know? This was all self-inflicted. Exactly. Yeah. And and it was nice. I mean, Ken Anglade noted that the two women were actually rather friendly, which that's I think good. is a huge testament and to Anne. And helpful to Haley. And so helpful to Haley. Absolutely. And did get a good little dig in about Craig, however. She said, Craig used my daughter from the time he met her. When he couldn't use her anymore, he got rid of her. Now he's doing what he's always done, sitting on his butt and eating off of someone else. And Legend. Snaps. Wow. Absolutely. And also, I, I do think it's, it's nice that they worked out a settlement with the life insurance company so that Haley did get some of the money from right. her mother. She should get all of it. I, yeah, I don't know exactly. They didn't disclose the sum, but she got a good portion of what was owed to her. 
You know, it wasn't her fault that her dad murdered her mom. No, but she should have all of that to set aside to do what she wants with it. Yeah, I mean, this is such a salacious story that it is easy to lose sight of the fact that there was a really dynamic and credible woman at the heart of this who didn't get to raise her daughter. No, that's fucked up. It's really fucked up because by all accounts, she was just, I mean, just not only a wonderful person, but a very devoted mother. Not many people, you know, who are feeling pressure to be on a track, like being an attorney would say, you know what? I don't care about that pressure. I'm going to go halftime and take care of my daughter. Yeah. You know, that takes a big set of balls to stand up to an administration and be like, I know I'm good enough that you'll keep me on halftime. You know, she always did what was right for her family. So a big love for Stephanie and her loved ones and those who remember her and were thinking of her and thinking of Haley, who's an adult now. How old is she now? She's born in 1997, I think. 90s, babe. Yeah, maybe a little later than that. I think they might have been married in 97. But yeah, so around late 90s, baby. So yeah, hope that Haley's doing well out there. And I do have a Wikipedia fun fact. Yeah. Summer was featured in something you may remember. I know I remember it from college. It was an early aughts HBO so-called – I thought you were going to say like two girls, one cup. No, 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 no. Documentary series. They called it a documentary series, but it was kind of softcore porn. Okay. Remember G-String Divas? No. I definitely saw this in college or like right after college. It was a documentary series with a bunch of exotic dancers at a certain club in Philadelphia. And one of the episodes was all about – summer. So despite my best Googling, I could not find her episode available for streaming, which is a huge bummer. Failure. Huge failure. It was produced by the same woman who did, do you remember Real Sex? Yeah. Yeah. So she did Real Sex first. Okay. And then she did this series, which was all just basically a a softcore porn pretending to be a documentary series. Yes. (laughs) HBO. HBO. And according to Answers.com, Summer slash Shannon now lives in New Jersey. She is married with two children and she works as a hairstylist. Awesome. Yeah. So I think that was probably a wild ride for everybody involved. Oh my God. Yeah. In conclusion. Okay, guys. Ponzi schemes never work out. Never. Never. I have never heard of a successful one at all. Never. Everybody always gets caught. Just don't do it. Don't, don't do, do it. It's bad for everybody. You know what else you shouldn't do, Jesse? What else? You should not really spend one to three thousand dollars a week on Delilah's Jen. Oh no! Not your own money. Yeah, you know what, babe? Can't buy you love. <laughs> and as always, trust your gut when it comes to love, so no one gets murdered. Love you guys. See you next week. Bye. Bye. 